Loneliness is a heartache that has come to be seen by many as one of the biggest health concerns we face. And it can affect any one of us at any time, whatever age we're at, whatever stage in life we're at. A student in digs, a mother coping alone with small children all day long, somebody at work who feels cut off from his or her colleagues, or an older person who's lost someone or something very dear to them. Ten years ago, we created the campaign to end loneliness to get to the bottom of all of this. And we're still on that journey. This is Loneliness Explored, and I'm Paul Can. This series is coming to you from the campaign to end loneliness. Over the next four episodes, we're going to discuss the effects of chronic loneliness. Loneliness which doesn't go away. And we're going to explore ways of combating it. We're going to connect people and their ideas. Over the last few years, we've approached this issue of loneliness from different directions. We've looked at the impacts on physical health. We've looked at what services can do public services or community services. And we try to understand the events in life that make us lonely. In this episode, we're going to look at the psychology of loneliness, what it is that's going on within us, how we can approach our own loneliness. And joining me to talk about that are Kalpa Karicha, who is Head of Research policy and practice at the Campaign to End Loneliness, and Michelle Dawson, who is the Programme Manager for Ageing Better, a major programme funded by the National Lottery Community Fund to address the things which happen as people grow older in Middlesbrough and Stockton. Hello, Cowper. Hello, Paul. And hello, Michelle. Hi. So let's start by... Understanding what it is we're talking about here. Kalpa, how would you define loneliness? Well, I think a very widely used definition of loneliness is one that describes it as a subjective and unwelcome feeling. When there's a mismatch in the quality or quantity of relationships that we have and those that we desire. And that's the Perlman and Blau definition that's very widely used. So it, it's, if you like, a, a painful gap between the quality, the quantity of the relationships you have and what you actually want, what you crave in life, would you, would you say? That's right. There's, there's two key elements there, aren't there? There's that distress, there's that unwelcome feeling to a situation that's unwanted. And, and I think that can work in both ways. It's not just the fact that when your relationships aren't what you want them to be, that leaves you feeling lonely, but actually those distressing feelings can really start to affect how you form relationships or how you maintain relationships. So there's very much a dynamic between those two elements about the internal and the external aspects of loneliness. And Michelle, What's the impact of this in in human terms? What's the impact of chronic loneliness? Tell us what you've seen. What we've seen in Middlesbrough 
of the impact of chronic loneliness? I think it's a really hard question to answer, Paul, because I think what we found is is older people whose loneliness is is interwoven and has become kind of so interwoven with lots of other difficulties in their lives so we have we have yet to find people who are chronically lonely in Middlesbrough who haven't first wanted to talk more about all of the other things that they really would like to sort out in their life first often the the people that we've worked with in Middlesbrough who are chronically lonely haven't really had a voice in terms of being listened to in any really meaningful way for quite a long time Um, and that means first we spend lots and lots of hours of people telling their stories often that aren't about loneliness it's just about being heard. And now we're particularly looking at the psychology of loneliness what it is that's going on in us. Tell us a bit more about that why is psychology so central to loneliness? I think psychology is one of the lenses that we can use to understand loneliness. If you go back to the definition that we talked about at the start, there's an emotional response to an unwanted situation. What we know about psychology uh, can really add to what we know about the other risk factors for loneliness. The transitions and triggers that we know can leave people feeling lonely. So by focusing on the individual, you can really get a sense of how they perceive their situation and how able they feel to respond to their situation. So I think that combination can help us support people better, not just by bringing people together, but really understanding what their own strengths and capabilities are to address their loneliness. And helping people relate to what's around them. I mean, Michelle, you've always been very eloquent about the lives people lead in the communities they have, and you think it's very important that we understand that context of loneliness yeah i think that um what we found through aging better as a national program is that the the geography the community the economic context in which people live and how long they've been living within that life has a massive impact on the on the learning that we have around what works to support people who are lonely especially people who are chronically lonely So in Middlesbrough, what we found is that the loneliest older people are also the people with the most complex difficulties, mental, physical health, past trauma, living in poverty, living in substandard housing, socially isolated. And all of those things kind of impact on on someone's ability to have hope for their future. And some of those issues and barriers, whether that be because they've spent their life lonely and those things have impacted or whether existing poverty and health inequality in Middlesbrough has led people to become more lonely. Whichever way you want to look at it, what it means is a lot of the work that we've done in Middlesbrough and that has been um, providing non-time limited psychological therapy, so high intensity therapy for up to you know a year or 18 months is what we found is that we've, with the cohort of individuals, which was relatively small, just over 100 people who we have data for, we improved their well-being scores. So the short Warwick and Edinburgh mental well-being scores, on average, I think 80% of people reported improvements in their well-being. But just over 50% of people reported improvements in their feelings of loneliness, which I think is really interesting. It's only a small cohort. But our learning is this, that even you can improve people's feelings and quality of life and well-being in themselves 
through those kind of interventions. But you won't always necessarily fix their loneliness, especially if some of the things that have led to their loneliness, the barriers can't be moved. So you can't undo, you know, poverty, physical health conditions. You can't improve transport links. You can't undo 30 years of being isolated. And, you know, those sorts of things really impact on people's lives in the longer term. So I think it's really interesting. Our learning in Middlesbrough is that through psychological approaches, you can make a massive difference to people's quality of life. But that doesn't necessarily mean they'll feel less lonely. That's fascinating. I'd love to come back to that in a minute. I have to come to this dreadful year that we've had with COVID and talk about the effects of lockdown. You know, in a way, coronavirus has kind of driven us apart, literally and physically. It's always come to represent the enemy of of what we want as human beings. What what is it doing to our minds and and how we can relate to others? What are your thoughts on how lockdown has made us more lonely? Yes, there's there's been a natural experiment this year, hasn't there? Not one that we'd want to repeat in any way, but the pandemic has sort of had a profound impact on our social behaviours, our ability to connect our relationships, our ability to see people that matter to us and put a, a real focus on our home and our home environment and our local areas. And of course, that works better for some people than others. And there's all sorts of survey data on how people have fared during this time, the impact on people's well-being and loneliness within that. And we know that People who were at risk before are those that have fared worse. And those risk factors are ones that we've talked about already in our conversation and are ones that are the challenging ones to address. So people with existing mental health problems, those living on their own, those who've experienced bereavements during this time have had a particularly difficult experience of that whole process and and I imagine continue to do so in many ways. So... It's had a profound impact on our networks and the amount of time that we've all spent alone, I think, has been one that has been enlightening for many people as to how people can or can't manage alone um, and really shone a light on what relationships are really meaningful to us, both the people that are are important and the places, you know, we can have important relationships with both people and place that affect our experience of loneliness. So I think lockdown has made us think about loneliness in in a way that perhaps we haven't before. It's made us withdraw from other people because we've had to, and that sort of withdrawal and time on your own can sort of make you withdraw further into yourself. It can make the thought of coming out of lockdown quite anxiety-provoking, I think, for many people. You know, how do we start to re-engage with people? How do we... How do we start to have those everyday interactions that we took for granted? This length of time that we've had to keep ourselves held back will take a length of time to recover from, I think. Absolutely. So let's think about what we can do about this, uh, not only in lockdown, but beyond lockdown. Michelle, would you like to say something about how individuals can move forward to 
grapple with their loneliness and whatever it is that they're feeling, even if they don't articulate it as loneliness? How can we all act? How can we behave? How can we move forward with our lives? Oh, I think that's a really difficult question, <laughs> Paul. <laughs> Honestly, I think that it really depends where your starting point was before lockdown. Our experience with people who have become lonely or who are lonely during lockdown through the delivery of lots of different types of support, so telephone support and doorstep support and delivering lots of things to people who are isolated or shielding or lonely or live alone and all of those things. Our experience is a spectrum of difficulties, experiences and expectations now. So what we're finding now is that people are waiting But some of their expectations are, you know, once the green light is there, that the world will be the same as it was before. They went into lockdown and I think that's a really interesting thing for people. So I think not to not answer this question, but possibly the question before, Paul, is that what we found is that people who were like informally connected to social spaces and social groups that they possibly didn't realize were having such a good impact on their well-being as soon as those things weren't there anymore and they couldn't go suddenly they were like actually I didn't realize that my volunteering once a week and my attendance at that particular group was so crucial to me and now I recognize that it is and I can't wait to go back and then I will value it more and possibly expand that because I have more understanding in about what keeps me well. The risks there is, will those things still be there? How will they be delivered if they were informal community groups and activity that were potentially run by older volunteers, which they often are in our local community? And how do we ensure that those opportunities are still available to people, especially if they were drop-in centres and drop-in chats and informal coffee mornings. Are those things going to have to be booked in advance? Will you need to be digitally included to book a slot in your local coffee morning when we come back? These are all real issues, I think, and worries that we have about recovery for people. And then you have a whole bunch of people who were, whose lives were already in lockdown and lockdown made no difference to them because that's the life that they were already experiencing. There are so many older people trapped in their homes for lots of different reasons and those people potentially had increased support through lockdown. So suddenly they were a little bit more happy that they were no longer missing out on it. There was a level playing field. Um, everyone was suddenly living the life that they'd been living for a few years or 10 years already. So, yeah, I think there's a real spectrum in terms of recovery for ourselves as individuals. And will there be the resource to support community groups and activity to recover? And if there isn't, because those informal things can no longer be informal in a world which is slightly more formal now uh, in terms of social activity, what do we need to do as professionals to step in and fill the gap for the next few years um, in the meantime until those things recover? So, for instance, we, you know, I can't pop down to the pub anymore with my friends over the summer because there isn't a single pub in my local area that has any available space. And if you're an older person who isn't online, how do you book social activity in? You know, that's a really big ask for someone who's lonely. Expecting people to do that in a way that means they've got to book their space in that informal community activity and commit to it. I'm really worried about those things, Paul, about informal bumping spaces in communities, dropping, all of that stuff is a concern for me in in relation to recovery for people from the loneliness of lockdown. That's very powerful, uh, Michelle. It gives us a great sense of urgency. And by the way, I'm completely with you about the pub and importance 
Cowper, you know, the the research that you have led has highlighted different strategies, different approaches that we can take towards feeling lonely, what we can do about it. Tell us about that. Yes, it, it turned out to be quite a timely piece of work on the psychology of loneliness, how people internalise their experience, how they feel able to change it, how they feel in social situations. So if you're lonely, you're more likely to be much more apprehensive of social situations and interpret them more negatively, be much more fearful or less trusting in them, uh, come away feeling more concerned about them in one way or other. You might may have interpreted that exchange in a way that's different to somebody who wasn't lonely. So that might actually have an impact on whether you do that thing again, you know, whether you go back to that group because you thought, well, did that really go as I thought it did or am I really wanted there? So there were a number of things we learnt from that work, but we also looked at the evidence on what sorts of psychological approaches might help with loneliness. And it's interesting to hear Michelle's experience because what we did was start with the evidence first, and there's very little evidence for us to draw on. There is some, and it's emerging, and it's very exciting to see. But we learned an awful lot from what was going on on the ground. Uh, we learned an awful lot from the examples in practice where people who were providing really good quality services, were bringing in the psychological, with the social, with the structural, all these aspects of loneliness into their support. And we've included that in the work, and there's some great case studies there, uh, including the work in Middlesbrough. So the psychological approaches that we know that can support people with loneliness are ones that really bring an awareness to people's thoughts and feelings and help them control them or feel a better sense of control about their thoughts and feelings. And there were particular approaches which were um, cognitive behavioural therapy, mindfulness and positive psychology approaches. But as I said, this is an early, this is very much what we know at the moment. And it doesn't mean that other approaches, other therapeutic and counselling approaches don't work. It's just what we know at the moment. And in practice, you find that there's a whole blend of these approaches being used as they're tailored to the person and the context and the situation that they're dealing with. But they share a lot of similarities in that they bring an awareness to those thoughts and feelings, you know, the despair, the distress, and help people to challenge them in a constructive way. So challenge why they're thinking and feeling the way they are. Use strategies to turn them into more positive and constructive ways of thinking, because people can start to think that those feelings are facts and that they are unchangeable. But actually, if you work with somebody and work through those thoughts and feelings, see how it's impacting their behaviour, you can make a, a huge difference. And of course, all of these things require a good relationship with that person. They require time to build a trusting relationship that allows the person to open up, allows the person to speak about what's important to them and makes that response really meaningful. So we know that there are some sources of support that are available, but it's very patchy. The routes that are there in statutory services aren't very available and open to, in particular to older people. They're less likely to be referred or refer themselves. So I'm talking about IAPT in particular. 
IAPT is Improving Access to Psychological Therapies. I think that's right, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's the primary care NHS primary care counselling government funded what you get if you go to your GP and say I'm struggling with anxiety or depression every area now has a some form of model of IAPT is the urgency on us as organisations to make sure that we are all aware that there are these things we need to get them out there and get them used is that a challenge that we're all I don't think that's a I don't I don't think as much as it was, no. I think IAPT isn't the answer to chronic loneliness, unfortunately, unless it becomes a, a service that's better funded and able to work with people over the longer term, at least not locally. Often IAPT funding is really prescriptive and stretched and um, there is about, I think, a nine-month waiting list to get access to step three therapy through IAPT, i.e. beyond six sessions of CBT. And you can't achieve what Kalpa has just described in six sessions <laughs> with a with a psychological well-being practitioner. Um, we deliver our Middlesbrough Stockton Mind is part of the delivery of IAPT in Teesside, and we've been delivering it a long time. One of the reasons why Aging Better funded more creative, more flexible and a more open therapeutic service for Aging Better was that we recognised that older people who were chronically lonely's needs were not being met by the existing commissioned IAPT service and, and that hasn't changed. Our IAPT service has broadened and developed and improved just in case anyone locally is listening and we are we are still really hopeful that we will influence how IAPT works with people with complexity but I, like I, I can't stress enough I think from our learning that it is brilliant if you can get really high quality therapeutic support to people who are chronically lonely but if you put really traditional therapeutic intervention in front of someone who has been chronically lonely the chances are that wouldn't on its own be enough what we found is that traditional therapeutic intervention so if you're a traditionally trained clinician a lot of the issues and difficulties that also need addressing when working with chronic loneliness won't be addressed by that person on their own it needs to be an approach that's in partnership with some with people who can do some of the practical more hands-on type support as well as the therapeutic psychological intervention one on its own possibly won't be enough unless you find a chronically lonely person where they have no other impacting difficulties which I think is in our experience not not a thing I think can I just follow up from that again I entirely agree with you Michelle I think our our conversation shouldn't focus only on people who have very complex very severe very long-standing loneliness because we know that whilst that is very important to support, that does represent a small proportion of the population. And we should have that perspective in what we're talking about here as well. Um, And I agree that providing that support isn't a quick fix by any stretch of the imagination for that group that, that has such a complexity of problems. And loneliness is an umbrella term there to describe so many things. But I think the other learning from the psychology of loneliness focus was really to shape how broad a support is provided and how we think about loneliness more generally. So there's a whole range of services that are there for older people, which bring people together in a variety of ways. 
um, out of choice, out of their interests, their hobbies, for just purely social reasons, where just building in that understanding of the psychology of loneliness can help improve the services. And I think that people who deliver really good quality services are doing this intuitively. Um, they understand how difficult it can be to engage with other people. That's the core of it. And I think just that wider kind of public health message about looking after your emotional well-being is as important as looking after your physical health. And, and it helps to sort of challenge some of these stereotypes. If you believe that older age is a time of expected loneliness, well, we know that if you if you carry that belief around you are more likely to experience loneliness. So just by challenging some of these assumptions is really helpful at a number of levels and for a much wider proportion of the population than just those that would benefit from therapeutic support on a one-to-one -one basis. So I've heard a lot about this thing called social prescribing, the idea that you go to your doctor who will recognise the fact that what's most important to you of all is your social connection, your connection with things that matter to you. Does this have a value, do you think, in all of this, Michelle? Yes. We mobilised social prescribing in Middlesbrough last April in the middle of the first lockdown. Um, it's I love social prescribing for, for loads of reasons, which is a totally different podcast. Um, lots of reasons why social prescribing is a massively positive thing. What I can say in Middlesbrough is our social prescribing service has been completely flooded by people with complex mental health difficulties, bouncing between primary and secondary care, flooded with people with complex physical health difficulties, bouncing between primary and secondary care. So what social prescribing is setting out to do is a really useful thing. And I think, yes, could absolutely work to support people who are lonely. With a, with a whole load of caveats that I'd probably have to spend about 20 minutes going through around understanding the research in this report. What we find is still a preconception, especially with primary healthcare professionals, that what social prescribing should do is just connect someone to community activity and that would fix their problems. And no real understanding of the gap between where people are and actually being able to find a positive experience for them in the community that wouldn't further compound their belief that you know like Kalpa was saying that the world might be a negative or a hostile place so yes absolutely social prescribing is part of a solution but I think if it's geographically and lo locally designed if it has the resource that it needs and if it can work within the sort of wider community and systems in a place and not be separated off as a primary care intervention then, yeah, I think it could be a really powerful thing. That's a great trailer for your podcast called <laughs> I Love Social Prescribing, Michelle. I love social prescribing. <laughs> I think in the meantime, we should have a T-shirt that says I love social prescribing when the NHS is missing a trick here, I think. And I'm going to put you on the spot, both of you, finally, very unfairly to ask you for a one-liner each on... What do you think is at the crux of the problem of the psychology of loneliness needing to be addressed? And it might be something that you wanted to take out of lockdown as a positive for the future. And to, just to start off, I will offer my own idea about this, which is my psychology is helped. My feelings of connection are helped 
when I go out and sing. My singing may not help people who hear my singing, but I love doing that. So my version of what we need is if I go to my doctor and he sends me off to the nearest suitable choir. We know that singing has a particular icebreaker effect in linking people up even more quickly than other things like an art class or a drama group. So that would be my one-line solution, but I'd like to come to you first, Michelle, to say what do you think is at the crux of the issue? I agree with the singing thing. I have a personal love for singing and hearing other people sing as a, like, a pure joy, um, although I don't sing great myself. I think what we haven't spoken about today very much is is a sense of meaningful and purposeful life. So I think some of what we found is that if you can help people to find meaning and purpose, either within their relationships, within their life, within the activity, and I think, you know, to an extent singing has that. But on a personal level, I am an incredibly connected social person. Yeah, I haven't felt lonely during the lockdown because the job I'm doing gives me meaning and I'm happy in my own company if... If I felt like I've spent the day doing meaningful activity, actually I become very lonely very quickly if the day hasn't been full of meaningful activity. And I think there are real connections between people's sense of identity and meaning for their life and how lonely they feel. And it's it's all entangled, isn't it, on what on what we see as being useful and meaningful and valuable to to us as people. So I think that that it's not one sentence, but I never do anything with just one sentence, Paul. <laughs> No, it's it's a wonderful not one sentence. What about you, Kalpa? Oh, how to build on those two things? Well, I think it's really understanding from engaging with people who are lonely and putting them at the centre of this to understand what it means, to understand their context, to understand the circumstances that shape their experience and how that leaves them feeling and able to respond is really the crux of how we bring all this knowledge together and move forward in a way that is meaningful and helpful. Very inspiring. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank you both, uh, Kalpa Karicha and Michelle Dawson. It's been wonderful, but that's all we've got time for today. Next time, we're going to start looking at, at the issue of the losses we experience our key events during our lives, the things that we lose that are dear to us, and perhaps the most grievous loss of all is bereavement. So we're going to do that as our next episode. But if you want to find out more, meanwhile, please get in touch with the campaign. And we're at www.campaigntoendloneliness.org.uk and our Twitter is at End Loneliness UK. Thank you very much indeed. Mm-hmm.